Hello, my name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions. And I'm Proven Paradox, a guy with a lot of questions. And you're listening to Bright on Buddhism, a podcast where we discuss East Asian Buddhism, answering listener-submitted questions from listeners just like you, and introducing concepts of Buddhism that you may or may not be familiar with in a casual, conversational setting. Enjoy. Hey everybody, quick disclaimer. Due to some technical difficulties, my voice might sound like it has low audio quality, but hopefully you can still understand what I'm saying and gain the information and the questions that I'm trying to ask and present. So sorry about that, but just be prepared. It'll sound kind of like I'm on a telephone line. Yeah. Did the best I could with it, and I think it's still perfectly listenable, but you're going to hear the audio quality, and there's nothing I can do about that part. So uh, yeah, enjoy the episode anyway, I hope. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Bright on Buddhism. Today we have a special guest coming in for their first guest appearance. Uh, we have Rebecca Stover, who is one of my colleagues at the University of Illinois, uh, and she specializes in library sciences. We're going to talk about some of her experiences with Buddhism scholarship and with library work and how all that relates. And she's also spent a lot of time, it seems like, in India and uh doing pilgrimages to places like Bodh Gaya and visiting places like Sikkim, who um, will be very interesting for us to discuss. Rebecca, would you like to introduce yourself any further? Um, sure. So as Nick mentioned, I am also a graduate student at U of I in library and information science. Um, and then kind of within that, my specialties are religion, specifically Buddhism, and Japanese studies. Excellent. Well, we're happy to have you on. Thank you for coming on. So I guess to get started, um, what are some of the challenges for curating Buddhist materials for a Western audience, be it a scholarly audience or a non-scholarly audience? Yeah, so... There's a lot of challenges and it's kind of subdivided into a lot of like different areas. I would say for English language, um, Buddhist scholarship, it's the issues are like supply. How much scholarship is there in English that we can get? Um, cause there's usually not as much in English or published in America as there is, for example, in Japan for like Japanese Buddhism for like Pure Land Buddhism, which I think you guys have talked to talked about on a previous episode. And then budget is of course one of the kind of obvious issues is that you know you can only collect uh, as far as your budget reaches, um, which is less of a problem for like big institution like U of I and more of a problem for like smaller institutions, etc. Um. And then you kind of get into non-English scholarship and kind of non-English material collections. And that kind of is its own kettle of worms because usually like that's done by specific area studies librarians. Um, and it's just different based on the country. Um, and there's a lot of really interesting instances of like kind of foreign relations really affecting how we collect um, because to kind of collect things from other countries, it's a matter of like, do they want to give it to us? Are they going to like tax us? Like what's going to, like, can we get there to collect it? Who are we going to talk to? Um, it's a whole thing. That's very fascinating. So it sounds like, um, in the case of Japanese Buddhism in particular, uh, it sounds like for one, one of the difficulties in collecting obviously is access and getting over there. And um, one of the things that I want to ask after hearing about that is, do you have any of those like maybe foreign relations related issues when it comes to Japanese Buddhism? Because I would expect that from an issue of Americans trying to study or collect or ascertain materials from China, but what are the challenges specifically for Japanese Buddhism? For Japanese Buddhism, um, it's less of an issue, I guess, um, than in... Well, it, it's actually interesting. So um, I would say if 
it's like widely available or not even widely available, but just like available in Japan. It's not hard for us to get it as long as, you know, you send someone over who speaks the language, has like some connections. Um, it's not impossible for like accessing temple libraries um, just for doing scholarship. You probably need a letter of introduction um, or like some kind of uh, like I think one of our professors mentioned if you tell them, like, oh, I'm a grad student at Harvard, they're like, ooh, Harvard. Okay. Yes, you can look at our uh, temple library collections. Um, but I feel like there's not really that many issues in Japan as far as things go. I mean, maybe I'm, like, grossly overstating it, but at least um, we have, like, relatively decent relations with Japan, so there's not really any kind of major issues the instances i'm thinking of for foreign relations are like uh so like we've got a lot of materials in this library and there is in other libraries from india from uh the 1960s that was part of an agreement for kind of the u.s sent wheat and grain over at the time when they really needed um food aid and part of that agreement was that we would get all of these research materials, all these all these publications. Um, and that's kind of an example of just a kind of a really fascinating example of like where our collection comes from. Yeah, that's super interesting. So I was I would like to get a little caught up a bit on what what does a collection in this instance physically represent? Are we talking a pile of books? Is this files on a hard drive? Are these loose pieces of paper? Like, what is what is actually physically being collected here? Yeah, so usually when you're doing collection, um, there's a few different aspects of kind of what the library holds. Physical books. Obviously, we have a lot of physical books. Um, and then we have journals, physical, but now they're going more into digital um, from different countries that will collect um we have rare books and manuscripts that are much less frequent, I would say, um, because they're rare. So it's always usually like, wait, how on earth did we manage to get this like rare scroll in like this library in Illinois? I don't know. Um, but we do have some. And then the other part of our collection that's kind of online is obviously ebooks um, and databases. So there are a lot of databases from like, for example, Japan, from Korea that basically have articles on them. And then usually the way databases work is that the institution, the library pays a subscription and then we access these databases. So you can download articles um, for your research. And those are like the main aspects of a library's collection. Cool. All right. And when I talk about like collecting, usually like depending on how big the library is and how big the budget is kind of affects how many databases you're subscribed to and then how many books you can collect. And of course, the physical space of the library is also affects how many books we can collect. For example, at U of I, we have our main library, um, which has a lot of different subunits. There are other departmental units all over campus in smaller libraries. And then there is also an off-site storage facility, which if you've ever seen uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, at the end, have you guys ever oh, seen that? That yeah. big, that big, that big building full of boxes. Yeah. yeah. It's like right. that, but with books. <laughs> it's like, awesome. it's like that, but only books. And we're almost, it's almost full, so... I don't know what's happening that, next. That's a lot of books. It's a funny anecdote. So I've actually borrowed materials from, it's called the Oak Street Vault. That's what we're talking about, right? Yeah. I've borrowed books from inside that vault and um, it's they all smell different than what comes out of the main library stacks. <laughs> it's not moldy. I mean, they're, they're taking care of their books appropriately so they, so they don't deteriorate. But... Um, I can tell when something's been in Oak Street versus when it's just been in the main stacks. Yeah, definitely. 
because part of it's underground, I believe. I think so. Yeah. So that's a fantastic, fantastic resource. And, um, yeah, they need to make sure to find space for the stuff in there because it's invaluable to whoever it is invaluable to. <laughs> yeah, that seems like the kind of thing where you don't need it often, but when you need it, you really, really, really need it. Yeah. There's been a few things from there that if I hadn't, if they hadn't been there, I wouldn't have been able to complete important assignments or even my thesis. And so I'm grateful that it exists. Yeah, I think it's part of the library's policy because we consider ourselves such like a research university to keep a lot of resources and to just like not throw things out. We don't, I mean, we've gotten to the point with some journals where since it's all online and there's a whole backlist online that like we're getting rid of some of our physical journals. Um, But for the most part, we keep books. So for example, Nick, you were earlier asking about the um, Japanese Buddhist materials. This isn't completely Buddhist, but for Japanese materials, um, we get a lot of gift books, which are just like this whole big range of really random books, um, like just from all over the place and from various places in like Illinois. It's like, oh, I have like a pile of Japanese books. Let me donate to the them to the library. And for the most part, we keep them. Um, unless like they're a duplicate or they're a translation from an English book. Um, as long as we don't own it, we'll probably keep it just like for posterity's sake or in case someone will someday need it. Fun fact, those donations are job creators because someone has to figure (laughs) out, someone has to figure out where that stuff goes and how to sort it. And it has to be processed appropriately according to whatever given libraries, you know, organization system and database system. And um, that's actually what I'm spending my time this summer doing for the university is working on archiving for a, a big donation of materials um, that, that the library just got. So those donations are a gift and a curse because they can ruin somebody's summer, but they can also make somebody's <laughs> research experience. <laughs> I joke about it ruining the summer. It's actually you know, very good work and it's very important. Um, and the library here treats everybody very well. So I'm, I'm glad that we have it as a good resource here. Yeah. It's one of the, um, I guess hats I wear in terms of my positions on campus, uh, is working for Japanese studies and going through all of the gift books in Japanese. Um, we've had some really random ones, so it's always really interesting to see like what book you're going to see next. Next question on our script. What are some ways you work around these challenges as a university librarian? Yeah, I mean, you know, for your first question, the non-scholarly, I didn't actually answer it because I don't really know. Uh, um, That's a much tougher one because, you know, the university library is, of course, like, I think you're allowed to go inside it if you're just a public person but you can't check anything out unless you get a special card right you have to go through a specific like u of i borrower process and get that stuff and of course the curation is no different for those people yeah and at least for like how we solve the problems i mean some of them are just not solvable problems they're just kind of how the profession goes um that like sometimes you just can't uh, collect for certain areas. Sometimes there's just like challenges beyond your control, especially when it comes to like international things. Um, I would say that for the most part in collecting and cure, well, okay, so first collecting and then I'll go on to curating because they're kind of different because collection is more just like getting the books or getting whatever resources we need. Curating is deciding like what's in and what's out and what we want to like show to the public. Um, So for collecting, kind of what you do to be able to collect books in non-English languages is that there's usually someone, a librarian, who has the, the language knowledge, who generally speaking has spent some time in whatever kind of country that they academically work with. Um, And then we give them funding basically to just like go 
like make connections, use your resources, get us books. And then they bring the books back. And in terms of curating the collection, so like at the U of I, we have what's called the decentralized library system. Um, we have a main stacks, which are basically just like stacks on stacks of books. Um, they're all kind of locked behind a entrance that you have to like go through and be a student or have a card. And then we have um, these departmental libraries that do not represent the entirety of the collection, but are kind of curated uh, subselections of books kind of as a starting off point for researchers. So one of the libraries that I work in is the History, Philosophy, and Newspaper Library. Uh, and then we also cover religion and African-American studies and Jewish studies and history of science. We have a very non-indicative name. <laughs> um, but one of the things that I've done in that library while working there is go through our Buddhist collection and kind of decide what books I think should be on the shelf um, for someone who is coming in and being like, I want to research Buddhism. And to do that, I kind of just decided to put on a collection of like what I would deem essential sutras um, and kind of primary source materials in English. Uh, we don't really keep a ton of non-English materials in that library. Um, so a collection of sutras and then what I would personally deem like kind of some of the really essential works. So like a smattering of like philosophy, like some books about Japanese Buddhism, some about um, China, a few about Korea, a few about like just all over the place. Um, and this was kind of just, I don't know, books I thought would be useful like adding on to the ones that are already in our collection and then also updating to have some of the more like newer scholarly works. Um, and then in a lot of ways, it was like nothing too specific. So for example, like, like you would probably put in like Nagarjuna's Malabhadhyamaka Karika, which is one of his really major works. And this is a, um, Indian Buddhist philosopher from like the fourth century. But you probably would not put in one of his kind of lesser known works that not as many people study because it's very specific. And we can just maybe rely on the fact that like if people really want to study him, they're going to get that book from the main stacks or from Oak Street. I imagine that the way it works is, you know, if someone wants something that's more specific and lesser known and more, you know, off the mainstream then they're probably already knowledgeable enough to go and know how to find that without getting stuck at what's not on the main stacks or what's not out on the shelves at one of these departmental units. Yeah, that's the hope is that because our stacks in HPNL, History, Philosophy, and Newspaper Library, are a lot more accessible than the main stacks because um, it's just like all in one room, basically, as opposed to the main stacks, which are kind of scary they're very scary they're so, kind of scary they're really scary <laughs> they're kept in a large brick windowless structure or i guess there's windows on one side but there's um eight floors i think is that right or is i there think more? so something like that and the ground level is actually the fifth floor so there's three floors above ground and five below ground and um you would think, okay, that means that there's one elevator system or one staircase system that connects all of these floors to each other. And you couldn't be more wrong. Um, it's very complicated and confusing to get up and down between these floors and even to find what floor your book is on in some cases. And so it's, I can understand why an undergrad would not want to go in there to find what they are looking for. I remember once upon a time back at my own university days, we went into the library, the big library, you know, and it's another, my, this was the university of Pennsylvania that I'm talking about. And it was another big building that had a lot of stuff going on underground. It had those adjustable shells that you have to, you have to crank like, them, crank them. Yeah. And it also had 
a lot of clocks all of which were wrong in different <laughs> ways. That's the thing. In different ways. There are three clocks next to each other. No label on what there's what time they're looking at, but they're all definitely looking at different times. Like what is with libraries being weird like that? It's a very old way of doing kind of library construction. Um, is that having that like centralized inaccessible kind of main book area because it's kind of like there's this kind of I mean I'm not super well versed in like the history of library architecture but I know that there kind of used to be more of an idea of like you put all the books in the center and you kind of guard them (laughs) Um, and now it's kind of there's a lot of librarians who are kind of pushing towards a more accessible library so it's easier for someone who walks in to just kind of browse through the books and like see what they want to check out it's kind of the difference between like a library and an archive you're not necessarily looking in an archive very often that's archival whereas a library is looking to get books to people who are looking to read those books right now like is that accurate you know i'm not a librarian so i wouldn't know but it seems like that's kind of the dynamic we're working with here? Um, I mean, an archive, I would say, is more for older materials that need to be preserved in a different way, usually. Um, Ah, okay. There's kind of a difference in the type of materials that they would hold is more of, like, I feel like the technical difference. Um, And I think this idea of, like, the library being something for people to use is something that's actually changed over time. Um, We really think of public libraries as being places for people to go and use and whatever. Um, But research libraries kind of traditionally are a little bit more like, how do I say it? Like dragon-like about their knowledge. Like we don't want to let too much of it go. Gotcha. Okay. That's definitely what I was looking at then. The place I was in was definitely a research library because I remember they had like tomes. Some of these were big and like would be difficult to turn the pages sort of thing. Uh, Still, uh, libraries are always cool. It's just there's the ones that are cool because they're like repositories of knowledge for everybody to get to. And then there are ones that are cool because like something's off. <laughs> so I, I don't, I don't get the feeling this is a building I'm supposed to be in. And please fix the clocks. That's creepy. Yeah, that makes sense for uh, where you <laughs> went to school, just because it's a kind of similar vibe. I think in terms of like, yeah. the bigness and in terms of, I guess, the type of university it is to U of I. That's just kind of like that type of a uh, place. If that makes sense. There also might be a sense of practicality to it. Um, because many people are used to places like Barnes & Noble, they, they kind of look at research libraries and they are like, this is not inviting, this doesn't make me want to read, this is not anything like that. But you know, part of what research libraries are trying to do is uh, maximize the amount of material they can collect in one place at one time. Um, because if budget is not a problem, then space is a problem, like we were talking about earlier. And if you're going to maximize efficiency of use of space according to a budget, it's not going to look very nice. I mean, there's not going to be yeah. easy chairs at the end of the stacks for you to like pick stuff up and read it right there. You know, this is really just kind of like a utilitarian way of looking at how to store books and not at like a customer service way of presenting books. That's true. A lot of kind of the goal of a lending library of like your local public library a lot of the time is circulation. It's to get the books to the people, get them off the shelf, kind of provide this community space. But for a research university, a lot of the time the goal is to just store books and accumulate more and more books. That's why I say it's kind of like dragon-like in that it just wants to like pile up the treasure and sit on top of it. Excellent. Well, getting back to yeah, Japanese sorry. Buddhism. <laughs> <laughs> Gone completely off field. Hey, these these guest episodes go off field. That's fine. That's it's totally fine. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So, on the topic of Japanese language scholarship about Buddhism, um, what resources do you recommend for getting access to that sort of stuff? What resources and methods 
would you suggest to um, both somebody who's, you know, in grad school or working in academia or also not, if you have a way for them to get access to it? Yeah, I mean, if you're working in academia, if you are affiliated with a university, I would say the primary thing that you want to do is talk to your librarian. Most, um, like, research universities, and a lot of universities in general, have someone who is the subject liaison for Japanese studies or for religion, something associated with Buddhism. Um, that person is almost always an amazing resource and someone who just knows a ton about doing research work um, and finding books. The person who works here at the university um, and is Rebecca's boss has <laughs> saved my life so many times on research for getting Japanese language resources. He is able to find stuff that should not exist, does not exist, and is not accessible to the United States and still give it to me. And it's just there. He just kind of shows it to me and it's, it just magically appears out of nowhere. So um, definitely talk to whoever's in charge of your international studies or your area studies or your religious studies. And it seems like, yeah, they'll be a very good resource and be happy to help about finding those things because they have access to connections and networks that, that graduate students or undergraduate students or just the regular public don't really have. Yes. Um, if you are not affiliated with an academic university and you're still doing research, there are a few things you can do. Um, number one is look at the lib guides for like big research universities because anyone can access these lib guides. A lib guide is, it's a library guide. It's a web page that kind of just gives you a lot of resources, tells you like, okay, there's this database, this database, I rec this guide recommends this book and this book, and there's tons of libguides. There are libguides for tons of subjects, and there are especially a lot of um, Japanese studies libguides, so it's a good jumping off point. All of the resources listed are not always accessible, depending on where you are, who you're affiliated with, but some of them are. And some books you can always request through interlibrary loan. Uh, even if you're at a small university, college, you can even request um, interlibrary loan books through your public library. So it's a, like just a great um, resource to access books um, for specifically Japanese scholarship. So most, um, there's a lot of public access Japanese scholarship actually especially in Buddhism. So for, uh, there's a few major databases. So Sine is a really big database. I think it's affiliated with the government of Japan or like the Department of Education in Japan in some way. Um, and also the National Diet Library. Um, I'll give you like some guides we can link to it too. But they... You can basically just like look for a subject in it and you'll find some resources. They do not have any um, articles, like full text articles directly on the site. However, they do link to full text articles in institutional repositories, which are a great resource. So it's a little complicated, but a lot of the universities in Japan have what are called institutional repositories. An institutional repository is a place. It's not a physical place, um, but it's basically where the university can upload its uh, publications. So if, for example, Otani University, um, which is a big one for like Buddhist scholarship, they have a journal about Buddhism. They've got a few journals about Buddhism, to be honest, but they upload all of these journals about Buddhism in Japanese on their institutional repository and anyone can access them. So it's just kind of a great place if you're looking for a article on Caroline Buddhism in Japanese and is very specific. Um, you can just find it and it's accessible, uh, which is great. For the purposes of writing my master's thesis, I made extensive use of the, um, I believe it was the Tohoku University Institutional Repository uh, because they have an entire specific 
curated collection, and I say curated, like digitally curated collection on the specific figure who I was studying as part of the background research named Inoue Enryo. And um, we'll talk about him in a future episode, but essentially without having to pay anything or do anything or even be affiliated with a university, I was able to, with knowledge of the Japanese language, go and download like upwards of four gigabytes of documents that were written by and about this guy on that institutional repository. And um, I'm sure that the other ones, just like Tohoku University, I'm sure that they also have um, like the, a very robust search engine and make extensive use of search tools and filtering, results filtering, stuff like that, that'll make it easier to find specifically what you're looking for, because that was super helpful with regards to the subject matter I was working on. Yeah, there's also a database called um, IRDB, um, the Institutional Repositories Database, uh, which allows you to kind of query all of the institutional repositories in Japan, basically. Um, So it's a really useful resource if you don't want to go like repository by repository, just do them like all at once. These do, however, require knowledge of Japanese language because the the websites will be in Japanese and the searching will be in Japanese and the results will be in Japanese. So keep that in mind. But this is a good way to get international scholarship in the United States. Yeah, or even if you're just like just starting on your scholarship in, you know, some Japanese but not like perfect, you can still kind of muddle your way through with like some Google Translate, some like dictionary, and then when you actually get like a useful article, um, just like using one article in like the primary language is just really good for your research and just a really good like way to start. It's one of the things one of our professors always says is that like, you just have to start somewhere with just like one article in Japanese and just like go from there and just like to prove that you're just like starting it. In my experience, the first Japanese language article you read in Japanese will take about, you know, depending on your level, it'll take anywhere from four to six hours, you know, and that's like looking up every kanji character that's like translating everything that you don't know or looking it up in a dictionary. But then the second one will probably take like two or three. And then the third one will probably take like 45 minutes or 90 minutes. And then by the fourth, fifth, sixth one, you're getting a little bit better at this and you're kind of able to do it faster. You streamline the process and making use of one article in Japanese gets closer and closer to taking the same amount of time as it would to make use of one article in English. Yeah, and it's like kind of with English academic research is that as soon as you kind of learn the very subject-specific words, um, it just helps a lot. So the first time you read like a very complicated academic religious text and you're like, why are they talking about like ontology and soteriology? What do these even mean? Um, but then like by the fifth article, you're like, oh yes, let me tell you about like the soteriological ontology of the hermeneutics of the yada, yada, yada. We encounter that a lot in Buddhism. You know, we, have a lot of, <laughs> we have a lot of big words in English scholarship about Buddhism and also big untranslated words from Pali and Sanskrit that, that make this an interesting conversation. So it's all about learning the language for sure. So I would like now to transition to uh, what we were talking about a little bit when I introduced you, but you have some experience traveling around in India, also living in Japan for a while. And um, you also told me once you had the experience of becoming a nun for a week. (laughs) And you also have experience with Buddhist pilgrimages, and we'd like to talk about some of that stuff. So what can you tell us about uh, your experiences with Buddhist pilgrimages using your trip to Bodh Gaya as an example? Yeah, so um, I, in college, I studied abroad uh, for a semester in Bodh Gaya, which is in um, the state of Bihar in India, and it's kind of on the eastern side of India. 
So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about what's important about Bodh Gaya? Yeah. So Bodh Gaya is basically where the Buddha got enlightened. Um, I think you guys have gone through the origin story of the Buddha. So in Bodh Gaya, he sat beneath um, the Bodhi tree over the course of three watches in the night and became enlightened. And it was great. Um, and that Bodhi tree is, in theory, still there. It is actually still there. They do have a tree. It is, I think, genetically related to the original tree, but I think it also got burned at one point. Um, long story, but there is this temple called the Mahabodhi Temple, which is kind of built around the tree, and people um, go on pilgrimages to Bodh Gaya. So it's usually kind of a cycle of pilgrimages. Um, people will go to Bodh Gaya, they'll go to... Um, Sarnath, which is actually pretty close, which I've also been to, um, which is where Buddha delivered his first sermon. Um, and then people will also go to um, Lumbini, which is in Nepal and is his birthplace. And then they will also go to um, Kushinagara, um, which is where he died and achieved Parinirvana. Uh, so a lot of times if someone's going to go on a pilgrimage in India, they'll hit all four spaces. Uh, but especially people will go to Bodh Gaya because enlightenment um, is the really important part. Don't tell the Buddha I said that. <laughs> and yeah, Bodh Gaya is a really interesting place. Um, it's really kind of dead in the off-season, if that makes sense. Um, so, like, when I moved there, like, started living there in I think it was September there just aren't a lot of people around because it's hot and no one goes on pilgrimages while it's hot and it's kind of funny there's like this cycle of pilgrimages because people come from all over the world so usually the people who are from like warmer countries come first and then like it just kind of gradually goes towards like in December is only when like usually Americans come and so in Bodh Gaya, there are a lot of different temples for different forms of Buddhism. So like, there'll be, there's a Japanese temple, there is a Thai temple, um, there is where I stayed, which was called the Burmese Vihar, and each of these are kind of for their different countries. There's a lot of places where like, if you're from like X place, you'll stay in the place built for like X people. If that makes sense. So like So these temples will house people from that place for the purposes of the pilgrimages? Yeah, some of them. So a vihar is usually like where you stay. Uh and then a temple is where you just kinda go hang out. Uh not always, but like there's a lot of them that are kinda like that where you they kinda have a vihar and then they also have the temple and they're a little separate. Interesting. So what can you tell us about the actual site of Bodh Gaya? It's a kind of small town. Basically, there is the Mahabodhi Temple, which is in kind of the center-ish. Uh, and a ton of people are there. People are doing um, full-body prostrations uh, and circumambulating around the temple. Um, so a full-body prostration is like, you know, well, we can't demonstrate because we're on a podcast. <laughs> um but you kind of have your hands together and you kind of do like the heart, head, above your head, etc. And then you kind of go down and like do your full body on the ground and then you go like up again. Um, and then you kind of do that across the entire length of the temple. So there's like an inner kind of circumambulation and then there's like an outer. And there's a lot of like smaller statues, etc. Um there are a lot of statues of different figures within Buddhism, and something really interesting about the statues is that a lot of them have had their heads cut off, and not all of them have been replaced with the right head. <laughs> uh, because, you know, long story, invasions, etc. And then inside the temple, there's a Buddha statue, and that's where there's usually a humongous line, depending on, you know, what time you get there, how early in the season is. And people will go there, they'll, like, do their um, bowing. You can get your mala blessed. Um, and then 
of course, when you, like, walk around the temple, there is, like, a Bodhi tree. Um, and people will, like, sit there, meditate. Uh, and then, in some cases, like, leaves will fall. And I think it's... Someone told me at one point that it was, like, lucky if it f- a leaf fell and you caught it. But it's not if you just pick up the leaf off the ground. Don't quote me on that, because I think someone just told me that, and I don't know if it's true. <laughs> That's still interesting. So, based on your experience there, what is the doctrine, and what is the meaning behind pilgrimage in the context of Buddhism? Because we have listeners who are going to be perhaps Christian, or Muslim, or Jewish, and that group of religions has its own particular pilgrimages for its own particular reasons. Um, but we haven't talked about Buddhist pilgrimage as a concept in Buddhism yet. And so what sort of, what's the idea behind doing this? What is the religious meaning behind going to those specific places? Yeah, I mean, I think merit is a big one. So kind of going there and kind of walking in the steps where the Buddha walked is very like meritous and kind of good karma. Um, not in like the immediate effect way, but in like long term, like, it's probably going to be good for you. I think part of it is kind of a ritual act. Um, it's kind of a tradition where you kind of go and do this pilgrimage, and that's just kind of part of the tradition, so it's kind of part of this ritual and this kind of like very experiential like going. I don't know. Nick, what would you say is the meaning of Buddhist pilgrimage? So I have a little bit more knowledge about the Japanese pilgrimage circuits, um, including... Shikoku, there's an 88 temple circuit that revolves around Kukai, the founder of esoteric Buddhism. Um, And there's also a smaller one that I think only has 33 temples, which regards um, Avalokiteshvara or Kanon. And one of the reasons why you would go on that pilgrimage is, um, is to, one, replicate the life of that person, right? So... In Buddhism, in Mahayana Buddhism, when it develops later, there's much more of a doctrine to replicate the life of the Buddha in your own life such that you create the causes and conditions that lead to your own enlightenment because they led to his enlightenment, right? So you replicate the idea of being rich and living in a palace and leaving it and trying out certain things and like you were saying earlier, walking in his footsteps, living and dying like he did, such that at the end of your cycle, you have attained Mahaparya Nirvana, uh, or Nirvana without coming back. Nirvana that is completely without residue, without remainder. You've completely left the cycle of birth and rebirth. So I imagine that the doctrine behind this pilgrimage circuit in India is to you know, be born the Buddha and then reach enlightenment as the Buddha and then give the first sermon as the Buddha and then um, die as the Buddha because you're literally doing those things where he did them. Um, The other side is also to, like you say, transfer merit and accrue good merit and good karma. If you're near those things, where those things happened, then it's kind of like you're in the audience. If you are making a pilgrimage to where the Buddha gave the first sermon, it's kind of like you're in his audience because the first sermon is still being preached. Every single day, somebody reads or talks about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. Somewhere, somebody doesn't. And so if you go where it was originally preached, you're kind of, you're kind of close to it. You're kind of hearing it preached again. And um, in that regard, you're coming into contact with the Dharma in a more direct way than you would otherwise. And so... In the context of the Japanese pilgrimage circuits with like Kanon and Avalokiteshvara, not only are they devotional in the sense that you are devoting yourself and expressing some sort of um, religious style of devotion to Kukai or to Kanon, Avalokiteshvara, um, but you're also getting something from them. They're also giving you something in the sense that you know, you're accruing the merit of going around in the circle or you're learning something or by making these offerings with, you know, these temples, you are receiving some sort of this worldly benefit or otherworldly benefit 
and you're also coming into contact with with the with the Buddha and the Dharma in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. We've talked before on the show about how you have to meet a Buddha, make offerings to a Buddha, and be prophesized your future Buddhahood by a Buddha in order to become a Buddha. And um, this is one of your chances to do so. Pilgrimage is one of your chances to do those things. So I, I imagine that since it happens that way in Japan, it, it can't be vastly different uh, for Buddhist pilgrimages in India. Yeah, I think that's generally um, pretty pretty accurate. Uh, I think that in India it's interesting because especially like Bodhgaya, you know, they get pilgrims from all over the world and from all different um, iterations of Buddhism. So like Vajrayana, like Tibetan Buddhists will come, um, Mahayana Buddhists will come, um, Theravada Buddhists will come, like, and along what you were saying, um, in terms of sort of meeting with the Buddha is, so Vulture's Peak, which I think you guys have probably talked about on this podcast before. Yeah. So Vulture's Peak is also in Bihar, actually. And something that a lot of people do and that we did while we were there is you recite a sutra on the top of Vulture's Peak. So you are kind of very much metaphorically, well, maybe actually, who knows, meeting with the Buddha and the host of Buddhas that kind of assemble at Vulture's Peak all the time. Vulture's Peak is an interesting site because there's a lot of doctrines in a lot of different kinds of Buddhism which regard the Dharma as being constantly, always, unceasingly preached on Vulture's Peak. Um, and they'll, they'll differ on what's being preached there and why, and they will differ on um, where Vulture's Peak actually is. Is it right here above us all the time, wherever we are, or is it actually the place in India? Um, but regardless, going to Vulture's Peak, I'm sure, and reciting a sutra has the aspect of good karma and merit, but also um, preaching the Dharma as the Buddha on the peak. Um, and also probably, you know, being in the audience when he's preaching or hearing the, pe- the preaching. Um, so I, that sounds really interesting. I have no doubt that that's probably a, a, a popular a popular detour on the pilgrimage circuit to go see Vulture's Peak and to do that. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty close to, um, I mean, it's in Bihar, so it's relatively close to Bodh Gaya, and Sarnath is also actually pretty close, so if you only have time for, like, one general destination, you can head all three of those in kind of one go. Just some travel advice. (laughs) Speaking of travel advice, we haven't really dwelled on this much in this explanation, but for listeners who aren't familiar with Bodh Gaya, look up pictures. There are some incredible statues and temples in this area that are kind of getting my... We're selling it short. I've just looked up what that what that big statue of the Buddha, uh, plus the one of him sleeping, and then just... I saw... Just looking through, just Googling Bodh Gaya got me to a lot of really uh, impressive art. Yeah. And something that's really cool about Bodh Gaya is that because they have these temples from all over the world, is that each temple is very emblematic of its home country. So the Japanese temple will look very Japanese, but then the Bhutanese temple looks completely different, but like very of the country. So it's kind of like seeing a whole world of temples in one place. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I would love to see that, too. Yeah, everyone, go to Bodhgaya. But don't go in September, it's really hot. <laughs> yeah, I'll wait till it's cool. Uh, is there more to say about Bodhgaya before I uh, I kind of sidetracked us there a bit? Well, the Dalai Lama comes every like other year, every couple of years to give like a big sermon for want of a better word um in like december january-ish um which is always interesting he's kind of cool kind of a cool dude yeah yeah Yeah. uh let's talk a bit about being a nun so (laughs) you were a nun for a week let's hear about that so um Okay, to give a bit of background, the way that the program I did in Bodhgaya worked is that we basically lived temple life and kind of very monastic life. So 
just kind of being there, you took kind of the five basic vows of like, no lying, no killing, no stealing, no... Uh, no violence. Yeah, I don't know if that was officially one of them. I thought that kind of fell under murder. Um, oh, right, right, yeah. Wait, lying, killing, stealing, sex. Oh, intoxicants. No intoxicants. Right. Okay. Um, so that was like kind of the basic ones that you kind of had to do to just be there. And then the way it was kind of divided is that we did kind of three parts. The first part was that we studied with um, Theravadan nuns and a Theravadan ex-monk, actually. Um, and then the second part was that we studied with a Zen monk. And then the third part was that we studied um, with two people, actually, with um, a Tibetan, well, I think no Tibetan, well, of that tradition, uh, monk, and then also with a Tibetan tolku, uh, which was its own kind of fascinating bit, because um, he was kind of a incarnation of an enlightened being, uh, and had quite the following of kind of people who went with from place to place. I'm totally sidetracked. Anyway, so the first iteration is studying with uh, Theravadan nuns, and it's traditional in parts of Theravadan Buddhism, so where one of the nuns was from in Myanmar. It's kind of traditional for especially children, but also adults, um, to take vows and to live as a nun or as a monk for a short amount of time, be it like a year, a couple days, a week, a month. Um, so we all had the opportunity to do that if we wanted to. And I was kind of like, yeah, why not? Uh, so you have to take at least what we did is you take five additional vows. I'm going to blank on all of them right now. I believe that they are like... No makeup. No um, makeup. No handling money. No handling money. No eating after noon time. Yeah, that one was rough. <laughs> Oof, that sounds rough. Yeah, no jewelry, which might have fallen under the no makeup. I know that in Mahayana, one of them is no sleeping on a raised bed. It, it wasn't that... There's one about storing food. No storing food. I don't remember if it was that one or not. Obviously, I'm not that great of a nun. I know that... <laughs> I don't know if this was a, an actual um, rule or just something that was kind of the custom, but you definitely had to be fully clothed at all times in kind of your traditional nun... In your, like, robes, basically. And there are, I think, aspects of the robes that you kind of... That are, like, there's no buttons, um, which I'm not sure if was a traditional bit or a vow bit or just, like, how it works. Anyway, so part of sort of taking these pre precepts, I think is what they were technically called, the vows, um, let's say you take them, you kind of have to abide by them for however long, um, and then there's kind of, like, an initiation ceremony in and then kind of an out-initiation de-initiation ceremony at the end um and then of course we all uh shaved our heads um as one does when one is a nun or a monk and then you kind of wear the traditional robes um and just kind of exist as a nun and then part of the program which i kind of meant to mention earlier is that you do morning meditation at 5 30 a.m and then you do evening meditation at 5 p.m. So it was a lot of meditating. Um, that seems like a big thing for Buddhist monks. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're kind of known for it. Yeah. Seem to spend a lot of time at it. So what did you do in between the morning and evening meditations? Um, did you do begging? Did you do sutra <laughs> study? Did you do... Well, we had classes. Oh, good. So you got, because, right, because this was part of your study away. Yeah, um, I was technically so, still in college, so I did have to, like, complete some classes. But you had to wear the robes to class. Yeah, yeah. So, had to wear the robes to class. Um, so I was taking, so we had a class on, like, meditation. So obviously part of that was going to meditation and doing meditation, and then part of that was reading about meditation traditions. 
Um, I took a class on Buddhist philosophy, and then I took a class on Hindi. Um, so most of the morning was just taking classes. So you'd wake up, you would go to the Buddha hall, meditate, and then you weren't allowed to talk until after breakfast. Um, so silent breakfast. And then classes started, did all your classes, had lunch, and then after lunch was, um, oh, that was like Hindi discussion session. So you had a class in Hindi and then Hindi discussion session. And then the afternoons were pretty free until second meditation. Um, so we would do homework, hang out, um, we had like one board game, uh, <laughs> <laughs> And so there was no internet, and we weren't supposed to have cell phones. So, and there wasn't really service anyway. So, no internet, no cell phones, just kind of reading, doing homework, exploring Bodh Gaya, um, that kind of thing. Did they ever tell you what you were supposed to be meditating on? Uh, so, we would have like instructions kind of for meditation. So, at least in when we were doing our kind of Theravadan meditation, we, let's see, it was mostly just like kind of breathing in and out, eyes closed. Um, we were kind of supposed to count up to, I believe, eight and then start over, but not to focus too hard on the numbers, just kind of like let them exist without kind of focusing on them too much. And then at, depending on what day it is, you would do, like, kind of a meditation on, like, like there was a meditation on death that we did, uh, which the nun that taught me said, never do it before bedtime because <laughs> you'll have bad dreams. Um, and then there was one on, like, you know, the, like, may all beings be well and happy and kind of going through a reciting, like, may all beings, like, tall, small, and medium, big, short, and medium be well and happy and kind of going through that whole cycle of like you know may those who have many rebirths and also those who may have no more rebirths be well and happy the like meta um sutta that we recited so meta is kind of like loving kindness which was kind of a big thing that we studied um and then after meditation in the evenings we would the nuns at least for that week would meet with the our teacher nuns and they would kind of give us instructions and just kind of talk and like answer any questions that we had. That's really fascinating. That sounds like a very interesting experience. And um, I hope that I get to do the same thing someday. How long were you doing this? Um, so I was a nun for a week. Um, okay. I did kind of the meditation and the, I was in Bodh Gaya for about, Three months, four-ish, part of, like, the way the program worked is that you did kind of your Theravadan section, you did your Zen section, and then you, you did your Vajrayana section, and then they basically gave everyone a stack of cash and told them to go and do an independent study. There was a little bit more organization than that, but, like, mostly that was it. Nice. And so we went out and did an independent study, and I went to Sikkim for a month. Um, and then came back, wrote a 20-page paper, turned it in, got a grade, went home. It's good that you bring up Sikkim, because that's the next question on the list. Um, what can you tell us about your research dealing with Sikkim? Yeah, so Sikkim is a state in India. It became a state in, I believe, 1974, I want to say. Or somewhere thereabouts. Um, it is very small. I think it is either the first or the second smallest in India. And it is located in between Nepal, Bhutan, and Tibet. And I believe the south is India. Um, so it's quite small. Um, it was a Buddhist kingdom with um, kind of theocratic leaders up till, um, I believe, the 70s. And it's kind of similar to Bhutan in a lot of ways, but kind of obviously did not manage to retain their independence, which is rather sad. Um, fun fact, they had a American what, queen. Um, I did air quotes because that wasn't the word. Uh, 
in the 60s-ish, um, who was like the second wife of the Chogol, so the traditional Buddhist king. And that kind of springboarded them into some very complicated international relations. Um, and actually, because they're in a very interesting location um, politically, being in between Tibet and also India, and kind of serving as this border, because like, you know, Chinese-Indian relations have gone up and down, and especially in that kind of era of when they were incorporated into India, this was actually an armed incorporation, like India invaded, and then they held an election and officially became part of India. Um, and China did not actually acknowledge them as being part of India until 2003, four-ish. Almost 30 years then? Yep. Wow. Oof. Yeah. So you're saying that um, Sikkim did not become officially recognized as a state of India by China until 2003 or four. Yeah. Uh, I don't... So my history is a little fuzzy, but there was a really interesting circumstance in the early 2000s where I believe a Tibetan um, tolku, I want to say, escaped China or slash Tibet and like, took refuge in Sikkim in um, one of the traditional monasteries called Runtek. Um, so pretty, by the way. Look it up. And China had an issue because they couldn't say, oh, he's in... They couldn't get mad at India because they didn't acknowledge that Sikkim was part <laughs> of India. But they also couldn't get to him, right? Because he wasn't in official China. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They kind of caught themselves in a trap there. Yep. I don't remember what happened to him. I just know that like China was upset because they couldn't be mad at India because according to them, he wasn't in India, even though he was. It's a really interesting place, though, and there is a lot of very traditional monasteries. Um, there uh, a lot of monks, a lot of kind of interesting Buddhist sites to visit. Uh, and then because it's all within the kind of similar... Buddhism, similar similar lineage to Tibet, because those regions are so closely intertwined. Um, Was there a considerable influence of Tibetan Bum on the religion in Sikkim in the time period that you researched? Yes and no. Um, I wouldn't call it Tibetan Bum. I would say more that there. It's related, um, but there is kind of this indigenous religion, which is very closely tied and akin to Bon and Sikkim, kind of more of a like general Himalayan region type. So there's a lot of like local deities that have kind of become synchronized with um, Buddhist deities or Buddhist Buddhas. So one of the things I studied actually while I was in Sikkim is I studied sacred spaces um, so thinking about kind of what spaces were considered to be sacred, what, um, kind of connected to their sacredity. So for example, one of the places that is sacred is the third largest mountain in the world, which is in Sikkim called Kanchenzonga, which actually to this day has never been completely summited. Amazingly, um, people have gone up but not all the way up because they haven't been officially allowed to by the government of Sikkim. Um, because it's a holy site, right? Because it's a holy site and because ah, okay. there is kind of a god of Kanchenzonga that like kind of inhabits the mountain. And I think that Kanchenzonga has to a certain degree been synthesized with um, Guru Rinpoche or um, Padma Sambhava who's kind of the big, important one in Sikkim. Um, That's really fascinating. Um, is there anything else that you want to talk about that you wanted to mention about anything we've talked about so far, Rebecca? Uh, not particularly. Go to Sikkim. It's really, 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 really pretty. It sounds like it. It sounds like it's really mountainous, and it sounds like it's really gorgeous. It is very gorgeous. If you're going to go anywhere, go to Sikkim. Also, because, I mean, 
So because India kind of took it over at a certain point, they actually also like inserted a bunch of money into Sikkim kind of for uh, general like development, which means it's really nice. Excellent. All right. Well, we'd like to say thank you to Rebecca for coming on and discussing library sciences, her experiences as a Buddhist pilgrim in both Gaia and her experiences as a nun, and also sharing some of her knowledge about Sikkim and the interesting political situation that it has experienced over the last 50 years. Um, thank you so much for coming on, and uh, we hope to have you on again sometime. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been fun. All right. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and the voice of Hearer. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of Hermit. And this has been Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Email us at bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com. Tweet us at brightbuddhism. And join us on our Discord server, The Hidden Sangha, link in description. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you. See you next time. Thank you very much.